Good afternoon, everybody, um, and welcome to uh, Norse Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds. I'm Mark Pipus. I'm the Fellowship Director for Hematology Oncology, and it's my uh, great pleasure to, uh, this afternoon to introduce our speaker, Dr. Clint Morgan. Uh, Dr. Morgan, is, as most of you know, is one of our senior fellows here uh, at Dartmouth, uh, soon to be leaving us, and all of our senior fellows are asked to give a Grand Rounds as a capstone for their training and to show their knowledge and their uh, uh, intuition into disease. Um, Dr. Morgan um, will be leaving us shortly and will be going to um, Lewiston, Idaho to go into practice at St. Joseph's Regional Cancer Center there. We'll be joining a large group. Uh, Dr. Morgan did his training at Brigham Young University uh, undergraduate where he was graduated in 2005. He went on to uh, the uh, State College of Pennsylvania and Hershey uh, where he was given his uh, 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 Doctor of Medicine and then his residency in Portland, Oregon at Provident uh, Portland Medical Center before joining us here in 2012. Uh, Dr. Morgan will be speaking with, uh, uh, to us this afternoon about aromatase inhibitor associated musculoskeletal syndrome, and we'll be talking about some work that he's done. Uh, he's a very bright, very outgoing fellow, and it's been a pleasure for us to have him here these past three years. He's taught me and many of my colleagues a lot about medicine, and uh, we're all going to miss him. So uh, welcome and thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, we're today going to be talking about uh, Aromatase inhibitor associated musculoskeletal syndrome, also known by its abbreviation AIMS. Um, and uh, happy Cinco de Mayo to everyone. <clears throat> uh, just the obligatory disclosure statement I have no financial interest, nor am I interesting financially. <laughs> and I'm um, not going to discuss anything off label, although AIMS isn't necessarily FDA recognized, so it isn't necessarily FDA recognized treatment for it, but for the symptoms of it. Um, so, this is a story about breast cancer. <clears throat> breast cancer is, this is an important disease. Breast cancer is the most common malignancy diagnosed in women in the U.S. and in the world. Um, the statistics from last year uh, were an estimate over 230,000 cases in women with around 40,000 deaths. Mortality rates have improved over the past 20 years, likely due to good medical therapies and early detection. Um, and there's high survival rates in the early stages, um, partially due to good adjuvant therapy, which we'll talk about today. Um, the Cancer statistics from last year show that breast cancer is still on top for um, cancers in women. And uh, you can see the pink line here of mortality rates of breast cancer over the years um, has, been, has been continuing to decline. So that's good. Now, hormone receptor positive breast cancer is the largest subtype. It's the most common uh, subtype. Approximately 75% of breast cancers are hormone receptor positive. Most breast cancer is in postmenopausal women, and the incidence increases with age. Um, and hormone therapies are the mainstay of treatment in these patients. And when you compare the incidence of the four different subtypes of breast cancer here, as you can see on top, um, you can see the incidence increases with age um, and, and with all subtypes of races here. But the hormone receptor positive HER2 negative group um, dwar dwarfs all the others. It's uh, so much more prevalent. Uh, so hormone therapies, how do they work? Uh, specifically, we'll be talking mostly about uh, postmenopausal women here. And uh, the estrogen pathway here is important. 
in, in all of them. Um, estrogens after menopause are made in fat and muscle tissue, liver, and adrenal glands. Um, the androgens are first made and then converted by the aromatase, inhibitor, the aromatase enzyme into estrogens. And those estrogens then bind to the estrogen receptor and stimulate the breast cancer to grow. Uh, serums like tamoxifen or ER antagonists like fulvestrant work at the estrogen receptor, whereas aromatase inhibitors uh, work at the aromatase enzyme and prohibiting this conversion to estrogen, thereby depleting the estrogen levels in the body and starving the breast cancer of estrogen. And there's a lot of data in the adjuvant and metastatic realm. We'll focus more on adjuvant therapy. Tamoxifen was the first uh, treatment on the scene. There's a meta, it has a lot of data uh, behind its use in the adjuvant setting. The meta-analysis of uh, 20 trials, over 20,000 patients show that it's beneficial. Uh, it was treated, it was given to early breast cancer patients for adjuvant therapy uh, for five years compared to no tamoxifen at all and with at least 15 years of follow-up in those studies. Um, and it shows benefit in all hormone receptor positive patients, but not hormone receptor negative. Um, it reduces recurrence rates, reduces breast cancer mortality, reduces all-cause mortality. And it has an added benefit for all these patients with or without chemotherapy. Uh, a recent study called the ATLAS trial, over, over 12,000 women uh, compared um, five years versus 10 years of therapy. And uh, it was... Uh, was studied in women who had finished their five years of therapy and they're randomized to five more years or to stop it at the first five. And it showed the extra five years tamoxifen reduced breast cancer recurrence, breast cancer mortality, and overall mortality. So benefit with even more tamoxifen. Um, and these were the, the groups in the study. Red was stopping tamoxifen. Blue was uh, here is continuing for five more years and there was benefit, less recurrence, less mortality. Um, so then aromatase inhibitors came along, and there's uh, three main aromatase inhibitors that we use today, um, the non two non-steroidal types and the steroidal. Uh, you can see their chemical makeup there. <clears throat> Anastrozole and letrozole are the non-steroidal types. Uh, they work by competitive reversible inhibition, whereas exemestane is steroidal, and it works by irre irreversible inhibition. So they're all slightly different to the letrozole um, was made after nastrozole and may be slightly more potent, um, and uh, but they're all deemed to be essentially equivalent clinically. Um, the, there was a trial comparing MA27 trial comparing head-to-head exemestane versus anastrozole in adjuvant therapy, and they were determined to be equivalent, equivalent outcomes there. And you see the lines superimpose themselves. This is just about a medium of four-year, a median four-year follow-up, but as a, as a big study, over 3,000 patients in each arm, so it's. Um, pretty reliable to know that they, these are equivalent, at least with the follow-up so far. Now, the side effects are not equivalent. They don't, uh, they're not the same being on the drug. There's a few, a few small differences. Uh, it's unclear how significant it is clinically. And you can see here the p-values are significant in a few of the groups. Uh, namely, LFTs are worse on exemestane. The masculinization is worse on exemestane, but the lipids are worse on anastrozole. Um, the more common side effects are not too different. Um, uh, hot flashes, arthritis, arthralgia, muscle pains are, are no different between the two groups. Uh, osteoporosis is worse with anastrozole, but no difference in fracture rates. So when after AIs came along, they were compared against tamoxifen, uh, uh, and there's been a lot of studies comparing these in different ways. So a meta-analysis, uh, over, 30, over 35,000 patients uh, looked at 
uh, all these different studies. And there's, they broke them into cohort, different cohorts, um, continuous aromatase inhibitor versus continuous tamoxifen, or the continuous AI versus uh, sequential tamoxifen in AI, or sequential tamoxifen AI versus continuous tamoxifen. And in all the, these different ways of giving aromatase inhibitor, every regimen, AIs were superior to tamoxifen uh, in preventing recurrence and breast cancer death. And somewhat fewer recurrences when it was continuous five years of AI versus the sequential. So really the more AI a patient gets, the better they do. Um, and there is even now uh, some new data for adjuvant aromatase inhibitors in premenopausal women if it's given with ovarian suppression. Uh, the text and soft trials have recently come out, the phase three trials, uh, looking at this. Um, they are analyzed together. And if you look at over 4,000 women, analyze them together, um, exomestane versus tamoxifen, both with ovarian suppression for five years. Uh, there's a significant improvement in the five-year disease-free survival rate with exomestane, but no difference in overall survival yet, although the follow-up is not too long yet. Um, they both have very good survival. Um, the text trial did show more benefit. As you can see here, all patients have a benefit um, in the exomestane group, um, but the text trial is the one that was really drawing all the significance there. So if you look at the soft trial more closely, um, it was over 3,000 women, um, hormone receptor positive early breast cancer. Um, and they also looked at whether or not they received chemotherapy. And they got tamoxifen versus tamoxifen plus aromatase inhibitor, um, or an exomestane plus, um, I mean tamoxifen plus ovarian suppression versus exomestane ovarian suppression. And they analyzed um, and compared these two groups. Now tamoxifen versus tamoxifen ovarian suppression they found no difference in five-year disease-free survival, um, but they looked more closely. Exploratory analysis found that some groups did have a benefit to the extra ovarian suppression, uh, and those are the patients treated with chemotherapy and the younger patients uh, less than 35 years old. And those pa patients also um, benefited from exomestane. So really the only significant uh, benefit in the soft trial here was the, prior the group that received prior chemotherapy. And if you looked at the no chemotherapy group, there's no difference between the lines. But the chemo, prior chemotherapy groups, the lines did separate. And the exomestane and ovarian suppression uh, group came out on top. So there's, uh, so there's definite, um, definitely a lot of use for aromatase inhibitors, and that use is expanding, maybe even into the premenopausal realm. <clears throat> so what else is different about tamoxifen versus aromatase inhibitors. Uh, they've been when they've been looked at head-to-head, -head, they also compared the side effects. Now, most side effects are similar. There's really no difference in hot flashes, depression, insomnia, fatigue, the, the bigger side effects, but there's certain things that are different. Tamoxifen causes more thrombosis and embolism, um, mostly venous. The uh, MI or, or stroke is no different. Sweating is more prevalent, vaginal discharge, and endometrial cancer is higher risk in tamoxifen, although overall it's a small risk, less than 1%. Aromatase inhibitors cause more uh, musculoskeletal syndromes, uh, symptoms, like we're talking about today, osteoporosis, fractures, vaginal dryness, uh, low libido, and dyspronia. Uh, and also, no, of note, there's more treatment discontinuation with aromatase inhibitors. And I'd like to talk more about that today. Uh, so adherence. Adherence is an issue with aromatase inhibitors. Uh, you know, patients cannot obtain all these aforementioned benefits of aromatase inhibitors, this longer survival uh, that we're talking about, if they do not take these drugs. They need to obviously be adherent to the treatment. Um, but about 25% of women on adjuvant hormone therapy do not adhere to their treatment. 
Um, and this rate is higher in aromatase inhibitors than tamoxifen. <clears throat> now, when you look at studies, the rates are not as high than the, the so-called real-life observations. Um, and the reasons could be because follow-up is not as good and cost is more of an issue. Studies often provide the drug for free, and adherence is higher when with closer oncologist follow-up. <clears throat> so uh, there was a study looking at, at this uh, discontinuation rate, uh, a study that they randomized to exemestane or letrozole, and they found 32% uh, of the patients stopped the aromatase inhibitor within two years due to adverse effects. That's a pretty high uh, discontinuation rate. 20, uh, a good portion of those uh, were specifically doing that because of musculoskeletal symptoms. Um, now, the median time of discontinuation was pretty quickly, within the first six months, and worse with exemestane. And the predictors of discontinuation included younger age and previous taxing chemotherapy. Um, now, in this, in this uh, study, 83 of the patient chose to switch to the other AI, and a lot of them are actually able to continue on that alternate AI longer. So it's, it's worth switching. <clears throat> now what, you know, we, we might say, well, my pa patients are, are definitely taking their, their drug and they're being adherent, but are they really? <clears throat> a trial called the COMPASS trial came out looking at 181 women on adjuvant aromatase inhibitors, and they monitored them for adherence by self-report by prescription refill logs and by a final investigation at the end of the study at one year. They randomized them to different methods of, of reminders, reminding them um, just no intervention, the control arm, um, phone calls, and letters. Uh, and what, this is what they found. They found that almost everyone said they were taking the drug, but a lot less of them were actually taking the drug. The red and green lines are the, are, are the actual adherence rates uh, of taking the drug 100% of the time. So now in the control arm, it was the worst. Having a reminder, like the phone call, the letter, uh, did improve the adherence rate. But there's still a wide gap between those who said they were taking the drug versus actually taking it. And uh, that's just a humble reminder to all of us. Uh, but certainly there's some, some room to help our patients be, be more adherent. So why are they non-adherent to their drug? <clears throat> Issues can be cost, hopefully less of an issue now that they're generic, uh, convenience taking a pill every day, lack of understanding, we need to explain why they're important. And finally, side effects. Side effects, I think, are one of the main reasons here why people stop taking their drug or don't take it all the time. Uh, about half of patients on aromatase inhibitors will develop musculoskeletal complaints. And around 20% can become non-adherent because of these complaints. Um, and this brings out the, this issue uh, called AIMS that, that this talk is all about, aromatase inhibitor-associated musculoskeletal syndrome. These are the musculoskeletal complaints the patients have while on aromatase inhibitor therapy. Uh, they include joint pains, stiffness, carpal tunnel, and trigger finger are also part of the syndrome. Uh, these symptoms can impair uh, one's ADLs and quality of life. Um, and it can affect a lot of joints. Uh, common joints include the, the wrist, hand, and fingers, knees, knees back, ankle, foot, hip, and shoulders. And those, those have all been complained about in studies. And this can cause discontinuation of aromatase inhibitor therapy in about 20% of patients and be bothersome in at least half of the patients who are taking these drugs. This is a real problem. <clears throat> what causes AIMS? That's, the, uh, that's a, been an important question. Uh, it's closely related to the arthralgias that happen in perimenopause. So there is a higher arthralgia rate in perimenopause than pre or even postmenopause. Uh, at this time, during perimenopause, there's a significant drop in estrogen, more than, and it's more than just a low estrogen state. 
like you would have in postmenopause. Um, and in this drop in estrogen period of time, there's a lot of bone turnover and cartilage turnover. Um, estrogen replacement therapy has been shown to improve arthralgia, so kind of confirming that it is from the estrogen. Um, estrogen has uh, antinociceptive effects, and that's lost when the, when the levels drop off. Um, and so the estrogen receptors, they work on the opioid neurons in the spinal cord in this kappa opioid analgesic system, changing the pain threshold in women. Um, and therefore, at this period of time, the, the pain threshold is, is changing um, and, 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 and causing more discomfort, and, and that discomfort is focused uh, on the joints a lot. Another theory is inflammatory cytokines. So estrogen does suppress these inflammatory cytokines, suppresses inflammation generally, um, and that could be a reason. Although some studies have shown, uh, have looked at inflammatory markers, and those are those are not elevated in AIMS. And so, although some image, small imaging studies have shown increased inflammation on the joints, so the inflammation uh, theory is a bit controversial. We're unsure um, about that one. <clears throat> so, what risk factors uh, could lead to um, could lead to AIMS? Uh, now, there are some previous observations, some small studies, um, and some symptoms reported or risk factors reported in previous clinical trials that have been looked at. Um, obesity is one that's been looked at, and it's, it's been found in some studies to cause a positive and others a negative association with, with AIM, so I'm not sure about that one. Prior chemotherapy, uh, namely with the taxanes, uh, has been associated. Pre-existing arthritis, but again, both positive and negative associations depending on the study. Time since menopause seems to be inversely associated, um, which fits with the theory. Uh, previous tamoxifen treatment may lower the risk. And there's other theories that have been talked about but not necessarily uh, looked at yet. Uh, statins might because they cause myalgias. Vitamin D levels might be important. Uh, osteoporosis or T-scores and bisphosphonate use might be important um, as risk factors. So some questions still remain. You know, which of these are significant associations? Which are true risk factors? Uh, maybe a larger cohort uh, could answer the questions better. Um, is the instance lower in adjuvant versus metastatic disease? Those of us who treat uh, breast cancer have, have the observation that patients seem to complain less about these symptoms um, when they're being treated for metastatic breast cancer than in an adjuvant setting. Is the instance higher in off-study patients in the and in the real world versus these selected patients on study. And what is our experience at North Cotton Cancer Center? Uh, what's our instance here? What's, what's the timing of symptoms, associations with, with symptoms, treatments that we try? And how many of these patients are seeing our rheumatologists here? Our rheumatologists are interested in this disease, interested in studying it and treating it and helping us manage these patients, but how well are we doing in sending them to them? So we um, concocted this study as a retrospective chart review, IRB approved. Um, we took just female, uh, the charts of just female breast cancer patients on aromatase inhibitors who had medical oncology follow-up here in our clinics, Norris Cotton Cancer Center clinics. We used EDH to query for a, um, for a cohort, and, uh, and we, the cutoff was patients had to have started their aromatase inhibitor before January 2013, um, so we'd have enough follow-up uh, for, for following symptoms. Uh, we found 573 patients to review, and 447 of them met our criteria for being part of this study. And we used chi-squared tests and t-tests for uh, analyzing this data. So, so the n, remember, of this study is 447. <clears throat> So we looked at all these variables in, in this study as well. 
recorded their age of starting the AI, a prior chemotherapy use, the rheumatase inhibitor used, adjuvant versus metastatic disease it was treated for, uh, time since menopause, BMI, T-score, statin use, vitamin D use and levels, bisphosphonate and denosumab use, and baseline arthralgias. <clears throat> we also looked at the incidence and timing of these symptoms. And for the purpose of our study, AIMS meant new, specific, persistent joint complaints starting after AI initiation. They had to meet the AIMS criteria that I talked about before. And it would, ex it would exclude trauma or an injury uh, that would just uh, be a temporary joint complaint. We're pretty strict with our, um, our criteria, only including those patients who definitely had AIMS, whom we deemed to have AIMS or their, and or their treating oncologist deemed to have AIMS. What we found was 187 of these patients had developed AIMS. That's a 42% incidence of AIMS at uh, Norse Cotton Cancer Center clinics. And that's uh, around the level that was seen in some other uh, studies as well. So I'm in about 40 to 50% range. So that's, that's consistent. So when do these patients develop um, these arthralgias, these symptoms? Some patients, as you can see, up to 20%, develop them really early, within the first month. Um, uh, but many of them, we noticed, didn't have symptoms in the first few follow-ups, but then for sure developed the symptoms later. So many patients are a, a few months delayed. But really, most of them develop symptoms pretty quickly. Within those first six months, 80% of the, uh, the patients will have developed their, their symptoms if they're going to have it. Uh, although there are some that are more delayed, uh, most, most develop them within the next six months after that, and a few, over it takes them over a year before they noted the symptoms or at least told their doctor about it. <clears throat> What's the average age? Well, the average age is actually different between the two cohorts. Those who didn't develop uh, the symptoms uh, were, on average, older than those who developed um, AIMS, and that was significant. And so, therefore, it appears that uh, younger age is a risk factor for developing AIMS. Um, now, which AIs do we use here? We, we use a lot of anastrozole and a good amount of letrozole as well. Um, just a small amount of our patients, just uh, a little over 10%, use exemestane as their first-line aromatase inhibitor. <clears throat> um, and if we look at the rates of uh, percent of AIMS uh, per uh, group here, anastrozole um, had a higher incidence of, of AIMS than letrozole or exemestane. And that was actually uh, statistically significant. So uh, anastrozole might be a risk factor. Using anastrozole first might be a risk factor for developing AIMS at least in our population. Now, adjuvant versus metastatic disease was also looked at, and uh, this was the, treat, uh, the purpose of being on the aromatase inhibitor. 95% of our patients were on AIs for adjuvant therapy. So at any given time, it's just 5% of our patients that are taking it for metastatic disease. So it's a small group, but if we still looked at the metastatic group to see if it was potentially uh, decreased the risk, if there's a, less, a lower instance, it, it did... It did look like there was a lower instance in the metastatic group, but as you can see, the N was only 24. The, the sample size was small enough that, we, that it, it did not meet significance, so we don't know whether or not metastatic disease is uh, an inverse risk, risk factor or whether it's equal. Uh, and then time after menopause, uh, we grouped them into less than five years, five to ten years, and greater than ten years since menopause. And that is since their last menstrual period or sat, since their last dose of hormone replacement therapy, if they were taking that, which a small percentage of patients were. And it's pretty evenly split between those in the first five years and those well past menopause. And there's a small percentage of people in the five to 10 year window as well. And if we compared rates of AIMS in them, 
um, the, the group of less than five years had a much higher uh, rate of AIMS than those who are uh, further past menopause. So uh, time since menopause was inversely related to, uh, uh, to AIMS. In other words, um, more recent menopause would be a risk factor for developing AIMS, which other studies have shown as well. Um, and here's one study specifically that uh, looked at it in a very similar manner that, to what we did. And they also found a significant difference between these three groups, um, uh, showing that more recent menopause is a risk factor. This was a cross-sectional survey study, pretty big group, very sim similar to ours, except that they did a sur survey. Um, and they found a 47% instance of AIMS in their group, um, and time since menopause was also an inverse risk factor. They looked at some other risk factors, and they didn't find an, any difference in them. So back to our study, we also looked at BMI as a risk factor. Uh, now, the average BMI was pretty evenly split um, between the three different groups, um, much like um, the national average, I would say. We have a, we had the highest of the three groups was the obese group. Um, and the, the normal BMI group was the smallest. <clears throat> um, and if we look at them, uh, as far as instance of, of AIMS, uh, there's no significant difference between them. Um, therefore, BMI, a higher BMI, was not a risk factor for developing AIMS. Although it's interesting to note that the overweight group ha had kind of a trend towards lower instance of AIMS, uh, though it wasn't significant, statistically significant. But it's just curious to, to notice. <clears throat> There was a similar study, that cross-sectional survey study, 200 patients that looked at this in a similar manner, and they actually found a significant difference. They found the overweight group to have a significantly lower instance of AIMS, um, a similar instance of AIMS overall, and they thought that overweight was an inverse risk factor for AIMS. They looked at many other things that didn't find a difference, but um, their theory was, well, perhaps uh, increased adipose tissue led to increased estrogen, which uh, which uh, was helpful for the pain, uh, but then once uh, once you became obese, the extra weight on the joints was potentially harmful, and negated that benefit. But well, I, that was their theory, and I, I'm not I'm not really sure, but that's that's a possibility. So back to our study, we also looked at T-score as a as a risk factor, and looking at our patients here in our clinics, we we found that a normal T-score was what most patients had, and a lot of them had osteopenia as well. Just a small group had osteoporosis. And again, this was baseline when they were starting their aromatase inhibitor, um, not what, how much it dropped while on. And if you looked at that, starting out with osteoporosis seemed to, seemed to actually uh, help prevent AIMS. In other words, the higher the T-score, the higher the risk for, for AIMS. Um, and a lower T-score perhaps was an inverse risk factor. And those groups are all significantly different. So vitamin D, was vitamin D beneficial in our, in our patient population? So we thought that vitamin D supplementation might be beneficial um, in preventing AIMS, and we actually found the opposite, that there was an increased AIMS risk in the vitamin D supplementation group, and it was, tech, it was just barely significant here. Um, and, you know, that, and so that's curious to find. Uh, we also found, we looked at the average vitamin D level in each group, those who developed AIMS and those who didn't, and they weren't statistically different, but there was a trend towards higher levels in those who developed AIMS. So does this mean that uh, vitamin D is harmful? Well, I don't think so. There's a compounding variable here in that patients 
who are having symptoms tend to take more vitamin D. And other studies have found that too. They looked, they, other studies found this exact same thing, higher incidence with more vitamin D or higher vitamin D levels. But um, they found those patients were just taking more vitamin D, trying to treat their symptoms, and it's probably just not helpful. But I don't know that it's necessarily harmful. Um, there's other, other, most studies um, did not show any benefit of vitamin D um, especially regular dose and patients who were not deficient didn't seem to benefit from vitamin D treating their aims. But once they did show benefit in aims when they gave a high dose, 50,000 uh, units of D2 every week, but they didn't have any benefit on the regular dose. Another study showed benefit only in those who started out deficient with levels less than 30. They took high dose, 16,000 every other week. And if they attained levels higher than 40, those patients had less arthralgias, but no one else. So maybe that's the small group that might benefit from vitamin D, is if they start out deficient, you give them high dose and replete them. Otherwise, vitamin D does not appear to be beneficial or uh, protective. <clears throat> so other risk factors we looked at include baseline arthralgias, which meant they had symptoms and um, uh, joint pain syndrome of some sort predating the use of AI, mostly if this is osteoarthritis, but we include all types of arthritis. Uh, we look, looked at statin use which are HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors like simvastatin, um, any use during the AI course, and osteoporosis therapy, anyone that was on oral or IV bisphosphonate or denosumab, and uh, they were on this prior to or during their aromatase inhibitor course. And finally, we looked at prior chemotherapy. Um, this was any chemotherapy treatment prior to initiation of the aromatase inhibitor. So usually adjuvant chemotherapy was given first before they start on an adjuvant aromatase inhibitor. And uh, previous studies have compared taxane versus non-taxane groups, but really this is a more modern study and everyone's getting taxanes for adjuvant therapy these days. So there really was no separate non-taxane group to, to look at for us. <clears throat> and what we found was that none of these groups were significant risk factors. They all, um, none of them uh, came to statistical significance. Um, baseline arthralgia looked like it was going to increase the AIMS risk, but not quite significant. Osteoporosis therapy we thought was going to decrease the risk, but not quite significant either, and, and statin use and prior chemo uh, weren't, weren't one way or the other. So those are risk factors. Um, so those are not risk factors. So then what treatment can we use for AIMS? Um, now there are some treatments out there that have been recommended, some of them tried, sometimes uh, they've been studied. NSAIDs, physical therapy or exercise have been tried, vitamin D like we talked about, alternative therapies. Um, acupuncture, yoga, glucosamine, omega-3s, switching drugs or doing drug holidays, SSRIs, prednisone, or, or just switching to tamoxifen or going off of AIs is sometimes what is done. Um, one study on switch therapy called the Atoll study, they had patients, postmenopausal women on adjuvant and astrazole um, that had lasting and severe musculoskeletal symptoms to the point of, of wanting to stop the drug. They allowed them to stop the drug for a month and then switch to letrozole and followed them for six months. 71% of them continued on the letrozole for greater than six months. So switching allowed those patients to stay on the AI longer. So that switching was beneficial. Another stu study comparing letrozole versus extemestane, they had the option in that study, if they developed AIMS, to switch to the other agent. 83 patients in the, of the 503 patients in that study switched. They needed at least a two to eight week washout period between the drugs. But they were able, almost 40% of them were able to continue the alternate AI for over a year. So again, another instance where switching allowed more patients to stay on the aromatase inhibitor. 
So switching is beneficial. What about exercise? Actually, this just came out recently. It was just published last month, a randomized exercise study, 121 patients with, who had already developed AIMS. They had been on an aromatase inhibitor for at least six months. They're people who did not exercise at baseline. Um, they had to meet that criteria. And they're ran randomized to exercise or usual care. Usual care being we tell people to exercise and they don't. Exercise, they were put in a class where they actually did 150 minutes of aerobic exercise, two days of strength training per week. So, so it was doable for the average person, I would say. Um, and they showed their, their worst joint pain scores were decreased by 29% in the exercise group and actually increased in the usual care group. And they did multiple other pain scores, and all of which were decreased in the exercise group. So it, it had a significant benefit. Now, this is just hot off the presses. Today, in JCO, if you look on your email, JCO just, just published uh, online first uh, placebo-controlled trial of omega-3 fatty acids for AIMS. And guess what they found? Substantial improvement of our, in arthralgia for the placebo arm. <laughs> And for the omega-3 arm, there's really no difference. But the placebo arm had a pretty good benefit. There is some, there's some benefit to trying something. Um, I think that's what that study shows, that placebo does help in, in um, arthralgias. They did show that omega-3s did improve the triglyceride panel, for what that's worth. But it, it certainly doesn't help any more than, than placebo in AIMS. Now, prednisone is something we, we discuss sometimes with patients. There's not a lot of data out there. And there's just this one Japanese study. They used prednisolone. Um, uh, we'd probably use prednisone here. But they looked at 27 patients with AIMS. They gave them just a, a seven-day burst of five milligrams, and then they stopped. But most people had improvement in their symptoms. And the interesting thing was even two-plus months later, many of them still felt better because of that burst of prednisone. So it's something maybe worth looking into. Um, so back to our study. Um, what treatments do we use here at North Scotland Cancer Center? Um, so of the people who, had, who developed AIMS, 187 patients, these were the attempted treatments. NSAIDs were really number one. 53% of the patients used NSAIDs, and most help, were benefited by it. They felt that it helped. Uh, 13 of our patients tried prednisone, and all of them felt that it helped. Um, 20 of our patients were sent to a rheumatologist. Uh, was probably not as high as we, we would like to be, to be um, sending their way. Um, and 46 of them switched between AI drugs. Um, now, 35 of those were switched to exemestane uh, from anastrozole letrozole. So about 76% of our patients are, switching, are going to exemestane as their switch drug. Seems like m most of our patients are starting on anastrozole and letrozole, and then most of them are switching to exemestane when we need to try something else for side effects. <clears throat> 39 reported improved symptoms after the switch. So it's an 85% improvement with switch therapy. So I think that, that confirms that it's beneficial. 29% um, of the patients took a drug holiday, and most found that beneficial, to have a little break off the drug, usually for uh, two to four weeks. Uh, and eight patients permanently stopped the AI. So we have a 4% discontinue rate, at least who is telling us that they're stopping the drug, right? But that's pretty good. That's a lot, a lot lower than, than all the other studies I've seen, a lot lower than the national average. And I'm not sure if that's because our patients aren't being truthful with us or because we're just tougher up here in northern New England. <clears throat> now, there's a lot of other things that were tried, but nothing we really, really could compare. Um, at, some people try acupuncture, glucosamine, physical therapy, um, exercise. It's just not too well reported to their oncologist. But there's a lot, a lot out there. Um, actually, there's a... There is actually a study on um, acupuncture, a sham 
placebo-controlled trial on, on with acupuncture that did show some benefit. So that's something worth thinking about. So what are the conclusions of my talk? After listening to all of this, what can you take, take home? Uh, well, these things are important. Breast cancer is important. Aromatase inhibitors are an important treatment. And compliance with those drugs is important to maintain that benefit. Um, AIMS is an impo important and major cause of noncompliance and morbidity in, patient, in breast cancer patients. Um, 40 50% of our patients on aromatase inhibitors will develop AIMS. Specifically here, our instance is 42%. Um, AIM symptoms usually develop early in the course of therapy. 80% of patients will have symptoms by six months. Uh, AIMS is likely caused by a drop in estrogen, that drop in estrogen effect on the body. And it's probably compounded by more recent menopause and uh, higher bone mineral density with more bone and cartilage turnover. Uh, AIMS is associated with younger age, more recent menopause, the highest risk being in the first five years. Uh, perhaps it's associated with anastrozole use over the other AIs and uh, higher bone mineral density. Uh, there's likely no association with prior chemotherapy, adjuvant versus metastatic disease, BMI, vitamin D level, statin use, bisphosphonate use, or baseline arthralgias. And patients with AIMS take more vitamin D, is what I would say. I'm not sure if it's a, a risk factor one way or the other, but they definitely take more vitamin D. <clears throat> Now, as treatment options that we can think about in AIMS include NSAIDs, exercise program, I think that, that data is pretty good, uh, drug holiday, and, and switching uh, the AI to another AI, and, and really any of the others. Uh, vitamin D th therapy, that's important for osteoporosis prevention anyway. We probably should be repleting our deficient patients and following their levels, because that also might help with their AIMS. But I don't think we should count on their vitamin D really being a good treatment for their AIMS otherwise. Uh, so what future considerations are there? Uh, I think we should investigate the pathophysiology of AIMS further um, to help prevent it and help treat it. Um, I think there's some promising treatments that we need more data we need to look into more, including the prednisone, maybe bisphosphonates and denosumab might be beneficial, something worth looking into. Um, I think the way we looked at it uh, was in retrospective, we need to look at it in a prospective manner. There are some more treatment options that could be studied, duloxetine, gabapentin, pregabalin, those are all used to treat very similar syndromes and sy symptoms. Maybe they'd be helpful here. I couldn't really find any publications out there on gabapentin and pregabalin. Duloxetine has a phase one trial that looked promising, probably worth looking into further, doing further studies. And uh, I'd just like to give credit where credit's due. Uh, the rheumatology fellow Zolt Kulchar was a co-investigator with me, we worked on this project together. Um, and he let me take all the glory. And uh, we had a lot of help from our advisors, uh, Dr. Kaufman in oncology and Drs. Jones and Rigby in rheumatology. And uh, appreciate Dr. Pipus as our program director, um, you know, allowing us fellows enough time to actually complete a, a, a research project that we start. And, and that's the end of my presentation. Thanks for sitting through that. And I, I appreciate any questions. Oh, we don't know yet. Okay. <laughs> Questions for Dr. Yeah. So when a patient goes on an adjuvant AI, he deems that it also been in six months, say. Mm-hmm. When they get the drug holiday or when they switch to another AI, what is the what is the time for washout between the AI? I think um and I thought that at what point do you ask them how they feel? Yeah. Right? And how long do you follow that? 
In other words, is it just the washout period or the drug holiday where you get a resumption of estrogen production mm -hmm. that's giving you the resolution of symptoms that if you last them six months later, you'll be back? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say, you know, the studies that looked at it gave a washout period. Uh, it looks like most of the time our physicians gave a washout period, but not necessarily every time. Sometimes they just switched right away. Um, that wasn't well defined before. Uh, but usually when we were asking them, we were looking further down the road, six and 12 months later, were they still uh, benefiting from the AI? And most patients were able to stay on them long term, several years later. Um, even with just the drug holiday, they go on a drug holiday, they feel better, they go back on the drug, the symptoms would, would almost always recur, but they sometimes wouldn't fully be as bad as they were before and patients would just push on through. And so it's still somehow beneficial to those patients, even just having drug holiday. And the switch patients often, and as some of the studies I reviewed showed, the, the patients who switched were able to maintain the second drug 12 plus months later. Um, so yeah, it does, it does help in that manner. Although sometimes you switch, you give holidays, you try all those things, and then you still run into barriers months down the road where you do need to try other options, like sending them to the rheumatologist or something. Because, so switching makes no By the mechanism of the drug, no, but the, by the mechanism of the side effect, perhaps, there's, there's definitely a different side effect profile between the drugs, and they, are, they do um, have small differences in how they work. Like I said, the, the um, steroidal aromatase inhibitors, you know, they, they bind uh, differently than the non-steroidal. The letrozole um, has a little different effect on the adrenal glands. Um, there's actually some, there's, was some initial concern that would cause adrenal insufficiency uh, because of that, but it doesn't seem to do that. Um, there's enough small difference between the drugs that the end point of preventing breast cancer can be the same, but the little differences in side effects um, could be slightly different. So I think there's, it, it does make sense why some patients could could benefit from, from one or, or could feel better on one over another. But overall, it's not going to be a huge difference, I would say, but maybe just enough to stay on the drug. Go ahead. Has there been any reported uh, weight loss for patients on the so it's not, we didn't specifically look at the kind of their BMI after um, treatment and so forth, um, but it wasn't, it's not reported as one of the major effects as, as far as uh, dropping weight, no. Go ahead, back there. Uh, as far as confounding variables, I think, uh, so she asked whether or not um, the reason why people who had osteo, or had a higher bone mineral density had less, or had more aims, could they have been on other drugs to confound that? We didn't see a significant difference there, because even people with good bone mineral density were taking vitamin D um, as much as the others. Um, there wasn't really anything uh, consistent to the group. But they're, they're often in a, in a retrospective review, there's, there's confounding variables that we can't correct for. Go ahead. To follow up on that question, we always assume we understand how our drugs work. Mm -hmm. We think about their effect on estrogen-producing tissues. But did you run into any investigations about are there biological implications of these drugs on the joints, bone, mm -hmm. cartilage, synovium? Are these potentially unexpected but targeted. Yeah. I didn't see anything about that. Any any theories of the mechanism as a direct joint, um, you know, directly affecting the joints, it seemed to be more indirect through the estrogen pathway. Um, 
but uh, it's I guess it's possible. I haven't. I defer to my rheumatology colleagues <laughs> if they know anything about that, but I I didn't say anything. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks.